Turn to Psalm 7. The joy to be able to sing these psalms. Thank you, men, for leading us in worship. Psalm 7. It was written by David, and many think that he was writing about Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. So we read the the introduction to this psalm. It says, A Shigayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Well, it doesn't say concerning Saul. It says concerning Cush, right? But we're not we're not sure exactly who Cush is, and some people have said, well, maybe he just didn't want to refer to uh, Saul by name. And so Cush was what he used as a stand-in. Saul was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, I think that if he had meant Saul, he would have said Saul. <laughs> but at any rate, it is clear that This psalm has to do with somebody from the tribe of Benjamin, and it seems pretty clear that it has to do with Saul in one way or another because of that. Um, It may be that Cush was one of Saul's family members or somebody who was stirring up trouble on behalf of Saul uh, for David. And... What we read about in this psalm is we read David talking about the trouble that he's facing because of this man Cush, because of the words that he has spoken. So it says uh, concerning Cush there in that in that introduction, and it could also mean concerning the or about the words of Cush. So he's doing something. And it's causing trouble for David. And he is supposed to be a friend. Whoever is causing this trouble for David has been David's friend. David has been a friend to him. And so if you've ever had a friend turn against you, you understand a little bit of what David is going through. Of course, probably none of you have had a friend try to kill you although maybe some of you have. Uh, I know I, I am less and less surprised when I find out that people have had somebody try to kill them, even their own brothers and sisters. I, it seems like I hear this kind of story on a regular basis. I remember the time that my sister or my brother had a such and such, and he was trying to kill me with it, and, and perfectly serious. Well, none of us should be shocked that this sort of thing happens, even in Christian families, because we know that anger and hatred are deep within us. We know that they flow out of a desire that that person would be dead, that they would stop being there. I just wish that you would be gone, that you would go away. These sorts of things that we yell in anger, there are ways to make them happen. And that's the desire that the words are coming from, right? And so sometimes friends, brothers, sisters are so angry at one another that they actually try to kill each other. And that's what's happened to David. Somebody, a friend, has become so angry at him that they're trying to kill him. And David says... I don't deserve this. God, save me. I don't deserve this. God, save me. He doesn't say, I don't deserve this. How dare you, God? And that's night and day, isn't it? The difference between, I don't deserve this, God save me, and I don't deserve this, God, how come you're doing this to me? David casts himself on the Lord, and he calls for God to be a judge between him and his enemies. So let's read Psalm 7. 
Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in You I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or He will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him, who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, He travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You might remember the first time you had a friend turn against you. I think everybody, after a certain age, has had this happen to them at one point or another, even if it's in a very minor way. The reason that I think it happens to everybody is because We've all seen the, the inclination in ourselves to turn away from somebody because it's convenient to us. So there's some sort of reason why, in spite of being friends with somebody, there are things that will motivate us to turn against them. Have you guys experienced this in yourself? And often it's being ashamed of your friends. Other times it's because you think that there's some sort of benefit that you can get by turning against them, by pretending to not be friends with them anymore. Sometimes uh, it's simply for financial gain. Other times it's for the, um, the sake of trying to remain out of conflict with somebody else. So there's many, many motivations that we can have to abandon somebody as a friend, to to turn against them, to not be faithful to them the way that they have to us. Or maybe it's simply because they have been unfaithful to us and, and then we see an opportunity to get back at them for the times that they've hurt us. Now... I went to public school from kindergarten through sixth grade. And by the time I'd made it to sixth grade, I had seen this countless, countless times. On the playground, I had experienced it with my own friends. Um, And especially obvious was the time that this happened among girls. And I think this happens regardless of where you go to school or don't go to school. If there are two girls that are friends you'll see them do this to each other. They're not talking anymore. This this even happens among sisters. 
And hopefully it doesn't stretch for weeks at a time like it did as I saw it at school. But, you know, they're upset at one another, and so they're in two separate rooms not speaking to one another. I'm not making this up. And I know because you guys are all smiling like, yeah, I've seen that. I've done that. As a matter of fact, it's such a common thing that it's in the movies all the time. And usually the way it's, oh, I mean, it, it happens all sorts of ways in the movies. If uh, It just occurred to me that it happens in, uh, in Braveheart. There's the, the scene of, of uh, betrayal, right? I, I, I'm struggling to even remember as it just occurred to me. But there's the scene of the most shocking betrayal in that movie where the, the army shows up on the wrong side, right? Isn't that what happens? Yeah. So everywhere from that, the, 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 the allies that you were expecting to show up on your side are suddenly fighting with the enemy, all the way down to the most minor of, you know, the, the, the kid in school that's too naive and too unpopular, and there's somebody who's been kind to them and friendly with them, and all of a sudden they show up and they hear their friend talking bad about them they're standing behind the doorway, right? And they hear their friend, oh, no, I only hang out with him because my mom makes me, or some, some absurd scenario. And the look of, of just shock and sadness on the naive kid's face, like, I thought you were my friend. Okay, so this happens all the time. It happens all the time. It's happened to all of us, and we have all done this, that we have been ashamed of, turned aside from our friends, taken advantage of them in some way, harmed them in some way. And this is what's happened to David. David has done nothing to Saul to deserve Saul's anger. David has done nothing to the tribe of Benjamin. He's done nothing to Cush, whoever Cush is, to deserve the kind of treatment, the kind of danger, the attacks that he is getting. The only reason that Saul hates David is because David is being blessed by God with many gifts, including the kingdom. Now, I want that to sink in for you. David has been blessed with the kingdom, and I just got done saying that Saul has no right to be angry at David, and Saul is the king, the king of the kingdom, and the kingdom has been given to to David, and Saul has no right to be angry about it. You got that? Saul has no right to be angry about that, but we would think if we were in his position, that we were quite justified in being upset, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you think that you, being the king of the kingdom, ought to be able to pass that kingdom on to your son, ought to be able to keep it for yourself, for your life, ought to be able to receive God's blessing? Why was the kingdom taken away from Saul? Because he disobeyed God. And it caused Samuel much grief. You remember how sad Samuel was at Saul's disobedience? And so the kingdom was taken away. It was given to David. And Saul is angry. But who's right? David is right. David is right. And you can see how confident he is that he's in the right, that he's done nothing to deserve the wrath that is being poured out on him. You can tell how clear he is when he says, If I have rewarded evil to my friend, if I have done this, if I have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, you gotta, you gotta notice that negative there. 
plundered him who without cause was my adversary. So he's saying, I don't even, I don't even attack, I don't even plunder those who are attacking me without cause. Those who are enemies without cause. I, I, don't, even, I don't even attack them. But if I have, what? Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. He forfeits his life. He forfeits his soul. He forfeits any glory that's left after those things are gone. That's the extent to which he is confident of his righteousness in this circumstance. He says, may God curse me. With the most extreme curse that you can imagine, if I have done these things. This is him saying, I do not deserve this treatment. I have never done this. I do not deserve this treatment. These enemies are doing me wrong. And so what does David do? He turns to the Lord. He relies on the Lord's judgment. Now, we we end up... We end up in these, um, in these catch-22s sometimes in our minds where there are things that we've read in the Bible that seem contradictory and we don't really know what to do with them and so we're just like, well, I'll just leave that over there, I guess, because I don't know what to do with it, right? You guys ever run into those? And sometimes they're big things and sometimes they're small things. But it's easy for us to run into one of those here because... He's saying, I don't plunder my enemies who are my enemies without cause, right? But now think about what he, think about what he is saying about his enemies in this psalm. Those who are his enemies without cause. He attacks them viciously, doesn't he? What kinds of things does he say about them in here? This enemy has rewarded evil to his friend. He says that he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. I mean, he's saying this guy is evil. This guy is truly wicked. And and so, how is that not attacking? How is that not plundering those who are his enemies without cause? You guys see that sort of conflict there? Because, I mean, you may think, well, it's obvious. I mean, he's not killing him. He's not taking his money or, or going and beating him up or anything like that. But hopefully, as we have moved beyond uh, physically trying to kill our brothers and our sisters and our friends and so forth, we don't think that all conflict has ended. How do we engage in conflict once we move beyond the, you know, the three-year-old out of anger, pulling back and decking his brother. Well, typically you proceed very quickly to using words, right? And, and the, the more you can uh, sharpen your words, the more you can sharpen your wit, the more hurt you can cause, Right? The tongue is a weapon, and David is using it. You see that? It's a weapon, and he's using it. He's using it on his enemies, and yet he's saying, God be the judge. He's, He's relying on God to accomplish his justification. He's He's relying on God, and yet he's attacking. So, we need, to, we need to be able to make sense of this or we're going to be caught in that catch-22 and we're going to do one of two things. Either we're going to think we should never speak negatively, we should never attack with our tongue or with a pen, 
right? Or what? What's the other thing that we may do? Yeah, just think, well, I guess I'm allowed to be angry and just hate my brother. But actually, we're neither allowed to sin out of anger, nor are we allowed to give up our weapons. (laughs) You see, David does not put down his weapons, and yet there is a sense in which David is very, very restrained, isn't he? Even as he is saying the most intense things about his enemy, remember what he does with Saul. Multiple times, Saul's life is in his hands. He's right behind him. And Saul doesn't know it. And he has his sword. In fact, he has his sword out. In fact, he uses his sword to cut some fabric off of Saul's cloak. That's how close he is to Saul. Or when Saul is lying on the... You know, maybe, maybe Saul would have a chance of of responding in that case. But not when he's lying on the ground asleep. Right? And, and David and his soldier are standing there over him, and his, his soldier is going, can I stab him? Can I pin him to the ground? We'll be, we'll, I'll do it so quick, nobody will even know we were here. And David says, no, 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 no. He casts himself on the Lord. He says, the Lord Take vengeance. The Lord justify. The Lord be my shield. The Lord establish me. Even as he's saying, what have I ever done to you to deserve this, Saul? And that's what he calls to Saul later on, right? In both of those circumstances, once Saul goes away or once David goes away, he's yelling across a field, O king! What have I done? When have I harmed you? What have I ever done to hurt you? And and Saul has to admit, nothing. Nothing. But David relies on the Lord. And that's what he does in this psalm. He does not go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't deserve this. And I thought that you said you were going to give me the kingdom, but, you know, I guess you just like yanking my chain, huh? Is that how you think about God? Is he someone who just likes to pull a switcheroo on you? When he gives you good things, do you assume well that it's just so that he can jerk the carpet out from underneath your feet later on? My son did that to my daughter this last week. I just remembered. <clears throat> she fell down. She was not impressed. We all know what it, again, we've all been through that, right? Having the carpet literally yanked out from underneath us and you land and you think, well, that's where that phrase comes from. But is that how you think about God? That he, that he enjoys doing this? This is, what the, this is what the Greeks and the Romans thought about the gods, that they were arbitrary, capricious, that they, that they liked to raise people up just so that they could make them miserable. But if you're a child of God, come to God like David comes to God. David comes entirely relying on him. And so David says, I I don't deserve this. My enemies have done this to me for no cause, no justification. In fact, I am so innocent in this case, not of course that he is without sin in his life, but he's so innocent in this case that he's saying, you know, may the Lord damn me to hell. 
if I have done this kind of thing. I have not done this. I do not deserve this. He has only cared for Saul. He's his son-in-law, caring for Saul's wife, I mean daughter. He is his military commander who has led his army in victory many times. All of the good that David has done for Saul, all of the good that David has done for Saul is, is rejected by Saul. All of, the, all of the benefit that David has been to the kingdom means nothing to his friend. The enemy has rewarded evil to his friend. Our tendency, the moment that we're harmed like this, the moment that somebody, some friend, proves to not be a friend, we want to make them pay. We want to make them suffer. Don't we? We want to make them suffer for their sins against us rather than simply to be content for God to be just, for God to be holy, and for his truth to be proclaimed. What Augustine says when we're seeking to do that is that we're not actually overcoming a man but we are being overcome by the devil through our pride. We, we go out and we try to overcome the man who has offended against us. And we try to make them pay. We try what David refused to do, which was to take out Saul. And think about how much easier life would have been if he could have disgraced Saul, if he could have killed Saul, if he could have done any number of things to harm Saul. But he refuses. When we go down that path, we're going down the path of being overcome ourselves by the devil through our pride. When we take judgment and vengeance into our own hands, we cannot pray to the Lord for help. He has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so if you decide that you're the one that has been offended against rather than God, and that you're the one who has to make sure that somebody pays for what they've done, you're not, you're not caring about justice. You're not caring about the Lord's honor. You're not caring about truth. You're caring about your own pride. You're caring about your own well-being, you're taking things into your own hands and you can't go to God for help. You're your own help. You remember when Jesus talks about the, uh, the Pharisees and he says, or he talks about those who love to pray in public places and love to be seen by men with their good deeds. And he says, they've received their reward in full. When you take vengeance into your own hands, you've received your reward in full. And how does it feel at the end when you've made somebody pay? 
yeah, at first it feels pretty good, right? Yeah, I guess I showed him. And then you have to sort of keep telling yourself that. Because of how empty you feel. Well, at least I made him pay. Well, at least I, at least I got him. It's an empty reward, isn't it? We don't like, we don't, we don't end up feeling like we've, we've gained the world. But here's what David does. David goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm in your hands. Lord, you take vengeance. Lord, they're your enemies. They're not my enemies. That's what David ultimately does. He says, you know, this is actually, this is actually about God and God's glory and his honor. And that is why David is content to wait as long as it takes for God to actually finish giving him the throne. He's content to wait because he's content to be in God's will. You understand? He's content to sit and suffer for as long as it's God's will for him to sit and suffer. And he knows that in the end, God will bring about his own will. He will bring about his own glorification, his own vindication. And David knows that in that day, he will be vindicated. Why? Well, yeah, because he doesn't deserve this. But ultimately, that's not what it's about, is it? He will be vindicated because he is on the Lord's side. That's the only reason that he'll be vindicated. Because it's only when we're on the Lord's side that we can truly say, I don't deserve this. It's only when we've been obedient to him and suffering for the sake of his name that we can say, O Lord, rise up. O Lord, rise up in your anger. Take vengeance on your enemies. You remember what it says that when... Michael was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. Not something we think about commonly, right? Michael the angel was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. He did not pronounce a railing judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. That's the model that we have here from David, isn't it? He does not pronounce a railing judgment. He says, the Lord is established judgment. You are the one, Lord. You appointed judgment, verse 6. Verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord. When we take vengeance into our own hands, it requires us to become enemies with God in order to do it. And so, in verses 3 through 5, what David does is he, he essentially gives us the flip side of blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. He's saying, if I have done this, if I have hated and, 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 and tried to take vengeance for myself, if I have uh, rewarded evil to my friend, then let me be accursed. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The flip side of that is, cursed are those who take vengeance, for they shall receive vengeance. You see? Or it's simply another way of saying what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us, right? Our debtors. If we refuse to forgive, we will not be forgiven. And you say, well, but has David actually forgiven here? I don't see forgiveness here. David knows his enemy, doesn't he? He knows he's not trustworthy. He knows he's not safe within spear range. What he ends up saying is the righteous God, verse 9, tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. And so, no, we don't, see, uh, we don't see forgiveness explicitly in here, but we do see very clearly that he has refused to take vengeance. He has refused to plunder the one who was his enemy without cause. <clears throat> He's not taking it into his own hands. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of his innocence, in spite of him saying, may I be accursed if this is true of me, he is seen as causing problems. We are blamed for stirring up trouble. We are blamed for causing war in spite of the fact that we are simply trying to live in obedience to God in expectation of him accomplishing his will. Think of David. David is simply living. He's simply doing what God has called him to do. He's living in the position that God has put him in, which is uh, what you would say, you know, president-elect. He's not in the throne yet, but he's been appointed to it, right? Right? He's simply living there in that, and he is being attacked as though he's the one who's making trouble. As though he's the one that's causing there to be controversy and conflict. But all he's doing is simply living, expecting that God's will will be done. That one day he's going to be on the throne. And living in expectation of that is enough to make people very angry. It's enough to make Saul angry, we've already seen, but it's enough to make other people angry too. Think about all of the tribe of Benjamin. They have the king from their tribe. Not just his family, his extended family. And their extended family, it's, it's a whole tribe of people that receive lots and lots of good blessing from having Saul be the king, right? And how many of them are looking forward to not having the king be in their family? Probably none of them. Whoever cushes, you can include him in that, right? Jonathan was okay with it. What a friend. You begin to see how good a friend Jonathan was, don't you? But of course, David's existence is enough for him to be blameworthy to a lot of people. Simply existing as a man is enough for for people to think he's stirring up trouble. As a matter of fact, even if he leaves the kingdom and goes out to Gath, 
even if he goes out into the wilderness and stays away, he's blameworthy. He's the one who's causing, stirring up trouble. You know, think of how much Saul could have gotten done if David hadn't been around distracting Saul. I mean, that's you, you got to put yourself in their minds, right? All of this distraction, all of this trouble, all of you know the, this fighting, and the, the armies keep getting called up, and they keep having to go off, and, and you know all this work, and they could have been taking on, they could have been dealing with God's enemies, but instead they're having to deal with David. Doesn't David know when to just shut up? Doesn't David know when to just go away? Well, he goes away. But it's not enough, is it? And so don't be surprised when you are attacked for being yourself and trusting God that God will do his will. For, for being a Christian. Being a Christian causes a... What am I trying to say? Being a Christian causes trouble, raises up conflict, stirs the pot. That's all it takes. David, all he's doing, all he's doing is looking forward to what God has said is going to happen. You see that? He just believes that what God has said is true. And it's like, how dare you? God is the one who appointed David to be king. God is the one that David looks to and says, you appointed judgment. God is ultimately the one that is angry at sin. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God is the one that looks at the heart. And what do our sins deserve? If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He's bent his bow. He's made it ready. He's prepared himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. God is a righteous judge. He looks through you, into you into your heart, your motives, your desires. Why are you doing what you're doing? So why does David claim to be righteous? Why does David claim to have integrity? Because none of us could stand before God and claim that. Well, because what we're doing is we're looking to God in a conflict this is what David is doing. He's like, okay, there's two sides. There's my side, and there's that side. And that side is attacking me. And the question is just, who's right? And he knows. He knows his own heart. He knows his own actions. But it doesn't matter what the rest of the... the therefore, it doesn't matter what the rest of the nation thinks. It doesn't matter what Saul thinks. It doesn't matter what his men thinks. He relies on God. You appointed judgment. If you don't save me, I can't, I can't do anything. God, if you don't save me, this nation can't be rallied around me to worship you. <clears throat> it can't, it's divided. There's two kings. And David is saying, rally the country, rally the nation, rally all of the nations around yourself to worship you, O Lord. And how does he end? He ends by saying, and here is what's going to happen to the wicked man. The wicked man in spite of all of his work, 
all of his planning, all of his attacking, digging a pit, hollowing it out, he falls into the hole he made. The last few weeks, uh, Tate has been digging in the backyard, digging a hole to start with. He was going to make, I don't know, an oven or something. And, uh, and then it got really, really cold, right? And you know what happened to that hole? It froze solid. A pile of dirt, they, everything's frozen solid. And he got a taste of what it's like to try to dig in frozen hard dirt. But how easy is it to dig a hole in the first place? Hard, he says. I want you to think about how much work it takes to be an enemy of God's people. Digging a pit. It can't be this deep. If you want somebody to fall into a pit and actually be trapped and or or really hurt so they can't get out, how big a pit are you going to dig? How deep is it going to be? Yeah, exactly. It's got to be real deep, doesn't it? And this is the enemies of God. This is the enemies of God's people. They are working and working and working. They're conceiving mischief. They're bringing forth falsehood. They're travailing with wickedness. Where's the other word that we use, travail? Anybody? Some of you women should know. Labor, right? Labor. She was in her travail. That's how hard it is. That's how hard they work to bring forth wickedness. And you know what happens? They're caught in their wickedness. All of that work ends up causing them to destroy themselves. Working, 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 working. And they're found to be working against God. And so, when David says, you have appointed judgment, he is speaking prophetically the truth. There is no doubt that God has appointed judgment. There is no doubt that the wicked schemes will return on their own heads. His violence will descend upon his own pate. And what happened to Saul? He tried and he tried and he tried to kill David. And David refused and refused and refused to kill him. And the Lord judged him. And his violence came down on his own head. In 1 Samuel, we read, Then Saul said to David, Here is my oldest daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. What is Saul conspiring to do? Saul is conspiring to have David killed by the Philistines. Right? He's planning, scheming how to get the Philistines to kill David. That was 1 Samuel 18, 17. And what do we read in 1 Samuel 31, 2? The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And Saul died, didn't he? 
his own scheming came back on his own head. He is not a fool, David, when he puts his trust in God, is he? Does David need to take vengeance? God is the one who has been sinned against. David understands sin better than you and I. That's why he says of his own sin, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. This is what he's saying about his enemies. Really, they're not my enemies, God. They're your enemies. And so I leave them to you, and I stay the course doing your work. I trust you because... If you don't save me, I can't do the work you've given me to do. If you don't establish me, I can't accomplish the work you've given me to do. And so this is us. We've been given work to do, haven't we? All of us have been given work to do. Think of church planting as hard work, right? Think of being a father. It's hard work. Being a mother. It's hard work. Labor is hard work. We've all got jobs in God's economy that he's given us to do. And we've all got enemies, starting with Satan, that are seeking to prevent us from doing the work that God has given us to do. Why? Why do they hate us? Because they hate God. There's no justification for it. Why did Satan want to ruin everything in the garden with Adam and Eve? Because he hated God. There's no justification. And so, listen. Put your trust in God. He's the one who's being attacked. He can defend himself. You say, yeah, but I'm being attacked too. And I say, yeah. And when God rises up to defend his name, who will be vindicated? You will be vindicated. His name will be vindicated. And you'll be established just like he promised. And that's good news. And so, yeah, you have enemies. And yeah, you're actually, you're actually fighting your enemies. David is actually writing very harsh things. But he relies on the Lord for vengeance. Let's pray.